Confounding, exhilarating, and contagious. Emotions matter, and so does applying emotional intelligence. Welcome to Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight, the podcast where emotions rule. Whatever the topic, how do hearts and minds collide? Find out with your host, a college professor turned globetrotting EQ entrepreneur. His mission? Each week, Dan joins prominent authors in decoding how emotions drive outcomes and make people tick. Now, on to the show. Hello, everybody, and thank you for joining me for this, the third episode of my new podcast, Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Today's topic is finding EQ with a little help from the Beatles. With me is Kenneth Womack. He's the author of Solid State, the story of Abbey Road and the end of the Beatles. The book is published by Cornell University Press. Kenneth Womack is the author of a two-volume biography of the life and work of Beatles producer George Martin. His book, Solid State, The Story of Abbey Road and the End of the Beatles, was published in 2019 in celebration of the album's 50th anniversary. His forthcoming book, John Lennon, 1980, The Last Days in the Life, will be available in October 2020. Welcome to the show, Kenneth. Uh, great to be here with you. Well, thank you for being here. I'm very excited for this episode. So the subtitle of your book would seem rather obvious enough. Uh, it's a familiar story, but Solid State is the title. Can you just tell us a bit about what's the meaning behind that selection? You bet. So when I came up with the idea of Solid State, uh, it wasn't original, quite frankly. It came from the name of the new mixing desk that the Beatles used exclusively and only on their Abbey Road album. It was the TG12345, um, and that stood for the Gramophone Company, which was EMI, and the serial number of their in-house prepared uh, new mixing desk, which was 8-track and Solid State. So it used Solid State Electronics. And I use the title as a kind of a metaphor for understanding both their use of the new technology, but of course also their swan song. And I would argue and do argue uh, toward the end of the book that it leaves them, this album and its release, in a kind of solid state. Uh, in terms of their foundation and their place in the world. Okay, so it's their it's the technology and their legacy. It would not be the emotional state of the Beatles at this point in the band's history. Exactly. Okay, fair enough. Uh, just out of curiosity, can't resist, um, maybe using the British releases, what would be your three favorite Beatles albums of all time and why? Well, that's a very tough, uh, very tough question because, of course, it's uh, ever-changing. Um, I'm in agreement with John Lennon that their albums are a single continuum in many ways. So it's, it's, to me, one body of work. But if I had to choose, I would go with the White Album firstly, uh, probably followed by Sgt. Pepper and Abbey Road. Okay. Uh, I admit in my case, and I, my answers do shift around based on the day, but I'm, I'm likely to go with with White Album first. But I might actually cha- choose Revolver second, especially the British edition with the wonderful song Rain, and then uh, maybe a toss-up, maybe maybe uh, Rubber Soul. Um, so I just want to give listeners a little bit of a feel for why I, I chose this book. I mean, first of all, I have to confess I'm a lifelong Beatles fan, a quite avid one. 
But I think from the point of view of this show, uh, it's, we have four very interesting and rather distinct personalities uh, in the throes of trying to get an album done, keep the band together as best they can. Uh, we've got creativity, egos, money issues. I think there's a lot to learn here, not just about who the Beatles are and how this album came to be, thanks to Kenneth's insights for us, but also what it can probably mean for our own relationships in life. So, um, you know, this is fairly well-traveled territory, Kenneth, in some ways, but uh, the book does have a lot of surprises, uh, including for me. What was the biggest surprise for you in writing the book? What was the, maybe the one detail, story, anecdote, revelation that really uh, caught you? I don't know that there are any necessarily, uh, to be frank, um, but uh, because it is well-trodden territory and especially for me. But what I find when I write books of this nature or the George Martin two-volume biography is that when you explore uh, the subject matter at this kind of granular level, you have an interesting experience uh, in – I think it's the closest we can do to simulating real time. And you start to understand the kind of emotional curvature of the story. You get a sense of the stressors, the bad timing, the good timing. Uh, those sorts of things become very much part of the story. And you start to make realizations that, you know, every now and then someone will walk through a door, usually metaphorically, and there is no return. And Emotionally and in terms of their interpersonal relationships, there were several doors like that that they walked through. As far as um, you know, revelations, most of mine are pretty minute at this point, but I think the minute ones are the interesting things. Um, uh, by simply asking folks questions, you sometimes find out something you didn't know. Uh, Alan Parsons, who kindly wrote the foreword to the book uh, and has had several conversations with me, I was able to get very interesting remarks from him about, for example, the fact that it was him uh, who made the edit, uh, the famous edit at the end of side one with I Want You, She's So Heavy and not Jeff Emmerich. Um, Jeff claimed it in a book, and that started to become, um, you know, truth as far as the Beatles were concerned. But it was Alan who did it. And when you start to examine where they stood and what they were doing in the studio and the control room, only Alan could have pushed that button anyway. Okay. Well, I admit the book had at least, well, it had many surprises for me, as I said a moment ago. One that would stand out was, if I read it correctly, that at one point, uh, John Lennon convened the band uh, after an acid trip to declare to them that he had concluded he was Jesus Christ. If that's so, that certainly makes the Ballad of John and Yoko a, a different sort of song. <laughs> it does, uh, for sure. And it also, in that case, um, you know, opens a door that we can't fully explore about John's state of mind. Uh, perhaps he is manic depressive. Uh, you know, there's a, a sense there that, that could be explored. But yeah, that was <laughs> that was a key moment. The day that Jesus yeah. came to the studio. Yeah, no, that's certainly eye-opening, shall we say. Um, kind of alluded to by your last statement almost. You know, the let's start with John. And I think I want to start with John, not just because he formed the band, uh, but also because uh, he's just such an interesting character. In uh, psychology, we often think of the what's called the five-factor model, that there are five key traits that can define human nature, not one exclusive of the other necessarily, but it, it often is referred to as ocean because those five traits are openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, 
and neuroticism. Uh, so taking on linen, what two or three of those traits might strike you as most prevalent in John's makeup? Well, certainly the notion of, of openness. Um, he would he was very good at living in the moment. And uh, this is one of the great challenges for us uh, when we write about and historicize the Beatles is, is the legacy of commentary that John Lennon has left behind because he was so very good at being in the moment and expressing what he was thinking on a certain day. Uh, not only would it occasionally get him into trouble, but it would it, it's left a very mottled, uh, confusing kind of historical record um, because he was open about the fact that he could be feeling and experiencing something one day uh, that might not be relevant by the end of that day. So, but but he was he was dead set and determined to to try to be honest and in the moment in his conversations. And that is proven to be very beguiling, uh, particularly since he gave so many interviews during the last weeks and months of his life. Uh, and of course, those have a kind of preeminence given their location in his story. Um, those interviews, though, are troubling because it's a guy, this is a guy who never gets to be 41 and revise what he thinks. Um so as you can see, there's, there's a bit of a challenge, you know, he, th there's a great example in solid state. In fact, uh, over the Beatles medley at the end of the Abbey road album, uh, a, a project of which he was very much a part during its early creation, uh, particularly its ideation as they began to imagine what this symphonic suite would be like. Fast forward a couple of months, he's in a car wreck. He misses some of the work in the studio associated with it. And he no longer likes the medley uh, and uh, would take that tack for a while, even though there would be moments across the 1970s, for example, where he would revise his opinion on certain instances in the medley. But it, it was interesting how that would take place. And we get very frank uh, readings of his temperature about that project at different moments in the story. Yeah, he, he certainly does strike me as uh, beguiling, as you said, and uh, some very strong and contradictory kinds of uh, statements or impressions that I'm left with. I mean, one is, just to seize on a couple here, uh, on the one hand, he calls the rest of the band members in your book, the, he's quoted as saying, the most big-headed, uptight people on earth. Uh, there's a lot of people on earth, so that's a rather strong statement. And at the same time, we have the really endearing uh, moment where he's in the movie theater watching let it be with uh, Yoko and 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 the founder of uh, Rolling Stone and his wife Jane, and that's just the four of them all alone in the theater in the middle of the day matinee, and John's crying, you know, bawling his eyes out, watching uh, Paul McCartney sing, uh, you know, I think it was Get Back or maybe it's Let It Be from the from the uh, movie, right? And that's such a wonderful detail and and. Kudos to Jan Winner, even though he didn't ultimately enjoy the experience of the creation of that biography. Uh, but what a detail that we didn't know before. And it, it says a lot about, you know, the Beatles obviously have a huge place in our lives. Look at what it look at what it meant for him. I, I adore that instance, too. Uh, and, you know, what's great about Lennon and his particular emotional makeup, um, while he can be beguiling at times, um, you know, take the moment in 1980 when he's asked to comment on eight days a week and he just, you know, eviscerates the thing in a, in a matter of words. Um, if, if the guy gets to be 45, 50, 
he probably would be where Paul was about songs like Let It Be, which had no religious overtones when he wrote it, but people took it that way and Paul was okay with that. I think John would have been okay with the fact that while he may not uh, be proud or even enjoy eight days a week, it gave at least millions of people joy and and maybe that alone is worth it. So um, he's a, a very interesting character to follow in those ways. But when the chips were down, and we see this up and down his life, um, he could uh, be terribly endearing uh, with the folks he would sometimes mock. Um, McCartney is a great example. Some of the things he says about him during that last year are wonderful. He calls him extraordinary, his dear one. Um, even in the last hours of his life, um, he tells Dave Sholin, uh, the wonderful uh, radio host, he says, you know, I would do anything for Paul, and I know that he would do anything for me. Well, that's a very nice sentiment, and I, and I do believe it, that that's ultimately where he, he came out in all of this. What do you think in terms of uh, EQ, I mean, practicing emotional intelligence? What was, uh, you know, in this final stage of the Beatles as a band, where did he show emotional intelligence, do you think? Where do you think he really may, maybe most uh, grievously fell down in terms of achieving that? Well, I, I think we should, you know, probably pick on all of them. And, uh, at this oh, we, and we will. <laughs> uh, yeah, but um, I, I think that uh, one problem that they had, uh, having known each other for so long, was an inability to accurately read people at this point. So John's blanket statement that these are the biggest pig-headed people on earth, you know, big egos, um, was self-projection. Um, and, uh, and this is true for our relationships, right? We, we find ourselves discovering that it's harder and harder to, to read people we know very, very well. Um, and I think several of their failures occur in this fashion, but they also really, really needed to break up and grow up. And, uh, they probably didn't have the words for that at the time, um, it was the right move. Uh, there were things broken in that relationship that weren't going to be fixed by proximity. Uh, you know, maybe they just needed a separation, <laughs> who can say, but there were, there were things that were very, very much uh, broken about them. And then when you throw in uh, John's and Yoko's challenges with heroin, um, it made it difficult for the others then to be sympathetic uh, particularly George Harrison, who's ready to get on with it. You know, his talent is really emerging by this point. Uh, and some of his clashes with Lennon are the most epic in 1969, simply because he he just doesn't have the time for it. Okay. Well, I mean, one of the things that, that struck me in terms of uh, those clashes is the role of anger for Lennon. Uh, I'm particularly thinking of the scene where he comes back from Scotland after the accident, and one observer uh, says that what he detected was that the other three Beatles were uh, probably more than a little bit of scared, you know, scared of John. And Absolutely. obviously you throw enough anger and, you know, reciprocal fear into the equation, uh, you know, that makes nothing easier. That's such a good instance. And that was Jeff Emmerich who noted that. And it was uh, it was interesting how they knew that they had license to continue working while he was up in Scotland. He may have even said that to them. Uh, he didn't expect to be there on the first day anyway. He didn't expect to miss several days uh, with stitches, uh, you, you know, and, and grievous injuries. I mean, he and Yoko and, and the kids to some extent were really harmed in that wreck. 
but they still were concerned that he might walk in and be infuriated. Um, well, he was, but it would happen later on and in different kinds of ways. Okay. Let's move on to, to Paul. Uh, same game with the, the five traits of openness, conscientiousness, extroversion, agreeableness, and neuroticism. What two or three of these would you maybe assign most readily to Paul? I would go with the extroversion and that kind of agreeableness. Um, you know, Paul is the person who's very willing, it seems from the evidence, to make things work. The one moment when he really is not, uh, of course, is a, a terrible one for them. And, and Paul would lady, later tell the wonderful Beatles historian Mark Lewison that the night that he declined to sign immediately their contract uh, with Alan Klein was the, the day they broke the Liberty Bell of the Beatles, in Paul's words. You know, so his agreeableness was uh, probably his greatest factor, but also in that single moment, not demonstrating it uh, really threw them all for a loop. Um, there was a great line from George Martin uh, very, very late in life uh, when he was talking to a neighborhood kid <laughs> up in his little tiny village in, I believe it's Oxfordshire, uh, where he had his estate with Lady Judy. And this kid asked about the Beatles and asked him to explain their personalities. <laughs> and Paul had a very interesting role in that band. And I think it's one that many of us can understand, whether you're this personality trait I'm about to describe or not. He said Paul was the convener. Uh, and in fact, when he was talking to this, this little, this youngest kid in town, he compared Paul to somebody they both knew in the village there. <laughs> you know, the guy who would set up the meetings, set up the times and bring everybody together. Paul was that guy. And, and of course, aided him. by the fact that his house was quite near the Abbey Road studio. Absolutely. So. Yeah. In yeah, fact, just in that, that much way, more convenient. Yeah, yeah. In that way, Paul had in fact put himself in a position to be the convener, right? Um, and I find that really interesting about him because every group needs a convener, the person who says, okay, that thing's coming up next week. <laughs> now, everybody wants to do it in most cases, but you need the person who will catalyze it. And Paul was willing to be that guy, which is why I think when we see them, uh, when he announces the breakup the next year, there's a certain level of animus in his voice when he says, well, you know, after a while, you look around and you're the only person there uh, and the others have simply stopped arriving. You can understand why Paul felt particularly miffed about this, probably because for so many years he had been this convener guy. Yeah. the um, I'm going to circle back to your answer on the, the traits. I, I do think he was the convener and he famously said, you know, I, I didn't leave the Beatles. The Beatles left the Beatles. I, you know, the agreeableness is there. The extroversion is there. I, I would actually call on the conscientiousness uh, that he was the perfectionist, the one who wanted more takes, wanted the, the song a certain way, it played a certain way. And I, to me, that's the trait that actually got him a bit in trouble. It's not just the scene about the money and signing with Alan Klein and so forth. I think the one thing that stays with me the most ultimately about Paul's role in this is when John, after saying he's, he's done with the group, wants a divorce, actually comes back with a rather constructive suggestion, which is on future albums, which John's suggesting there could be, um, that they divide it 12 songs three ways. Uh, him and Paul and George all get four songs, and that's what he wants. And it's Paul who 
turns it down or, or at least is mum to the suggestion. Any, any comments or observations on that front? Well, too, uh, actually, and that's such a big moment for them uh, because it should be, you know, for many of us, it should seem like an easy fix. Okay, great. Well, here's how we'll do this. You know, and in your mind, you know, Ringo is not going to come up with three or four songs every album, so you'll get more space there. Uh, but Paul won't do it. And, uh, you know, I, I think it's arguable uh, that the stakes of authorship had gotten so high by this point. Uh, and it started very early when they were being feted in you know, television specials before they'd really done anything as these great composers. So that was very much a part of both the Lennon and McCartney uh, individual makeup. Uh, but Paul not being able to accept that when he really believed the Beatles were a democracy demonstrates that when it came to talent, he did not totally subscribe to that idea. And George Martin would have agreed too. And actually John Lennon would too. They would both say in subsequent years that, you know, there was, there was no doubt that Lennon and McCartney were the greater talents. Um, but this attempt to, uh, to meet it out in a very democratic way just wouldn't fly with him. And of course, in that same moment, John Lennon talks about uh, the issue of Maxwell's silver hammer. Um, and he says, well, you know, it wasn't a good song. You could have given it to somebody else. You don't even like uh, Maxwell's <laughs> silver hammer, which Paul had told John. Um, yeah. Well, I confess I don't like it either. Um, yeah. um, it, it mar- mars the album. Well, I have a wonderful postscript on that. I'll share with you in a moment, but um, and, and it's not my favorite song either. Uh, and it clearly wasn't McCartney's, but he couldn't let it go. It was a piece of genius coming out of him and he had to finish it. In 1980, in August, when uh, the Beatles, uh, excuse me, when John Lennon's making his last record in the studio, uh, of course, the Beatles came up constantly. The band was just enamored with the fact that here they are working with John Lennon, who's been in retirement for five years. And one of them uh, came up to him at one point and said, what broke up the Beatles? He just had to know, right? And John said, Maxwell Silverhammer. (laughs) And I think encapsulated in that is the larger issues at play about you know, what to do with the real estate of their albums. Um, They did have ambition to be great, which is a a wonderful kind of modernist trait that they shared, Um, you know, all four of them. Uh, But Paul could not deal with that. My my little postscript on Maxwell Silverhammer, I was doing a serious show with Alan Parsons uh, to promote the book. And it was a wonderful, uh, fun time. We, we went up to Sirius, uh, to the studio there. In fact, it was under construction and we sat outside and, uh, we had to wait in a, in a kind of unused anteroom because they were doing some remodeling and you could see somebody had taped up Sirius XM radio on the, on the doorway. Um, and I said, Alan, that's a, that's familiar, right? You, you think they got the idea from you? He said, what do you mean? I said, serious eye in the sky (laughs) and he goes oh well maybe so (laughs) anyway we went in and we did the interview and at one point uh the fellow who was interviewing us um started to mock maxwell silver hammer and you know alan is this massive guy in every way and he says well i i quite like maxwell silver (laughs) hammer and the fellow didn't know what to do and frankly neither did i you know yeah, well, to to me, it's a is a, why I voted for conscientiousness because I think when you said Paul just couldn't let it go, there, yeah, there's there's some control element in that perfection, which is wonderful in terms of ambition and obviously a, a wealth of great songs. But uh, it seemed to me in this moment in the Beatles, 
uh, that the the conscientiousness of Paul and the agreeableness of Paul seemed to be in some ways in in conflict. I, I knew a lot about him going into the funk in Scotland as this period of time was happening. One comment, though, he made from that time really shocked me. He said he had outlived his usefulness. I, I, that, I mean, he, he had a lot of talent and a lot of you know moments still to come. That really struck me. Any, any insights as to how this plays into McCartney understanding himself and his emotions and identity, I suppose we could say. That's such a brutal thing to read, right? Because he's 27. <laughs> yeah. He's There's 27 that too, yes. years old. He is, um, you know, he's been in a band that uh, he had a major role in uh, and arguably at times the major role in. They've had 27 number one singles in the U.S. and the U.K. Uh, the, the idea of usefulness uh, is, is such a fascinating place to go. I think we have to believe him, though, right, in those admissions. And there's a great one he also makes around this time. Somebody asked him, you know, how do you write a great hit song like Hey Jude? And Paul said, I don't know. Uh, (laughs) And has said many times that he's not sure, quite frankly, that he knows when he hears one what a great hit song is, you know, which would seem counterintuitive to this person in his career. But I think that his way around that was to work a song to death, get excited about it, and do everything you can, a la Maxwell Silverhammer, and then release it onto the world. Uh, That technique obviously was not working with his bandmates (laughs) by this point. Yeah, well, I I would say at this point, I mean, yeah, from certainly from Sergeant Pepper's on, he had been driving the, the locomotive for quite a while and and probably sometimes rather rather hard i mean you have a scene where i don't remember what song it is but they've recorded it and paul wants more takes and more takes and they go back into the sound room and they suddenly realize that about an hour ago they had a perfectly good version and indeed the one they settled on in the end um let's move on to george what two traits would you maybe most identify with george we begin got openness and conscientiousness extroversion agreeableness and neuroticism a couple there that might stand out as far as you're concerned with George? Well, uh, yeah, I think by this point, those last two are very important because, of course, uh, he has been a very agreeable guy um, and has made very few waves, all things considered. Um, I mean, go back to Sergeant Pepper, where he has uh, at times the most limited role, even more so than Ringo on that record. Uh, they reject his first song that he wants to include. It's only a Northern song and send him back to the drawing board. I would argue he comes up with a much better piece and within you, without you. Um, of course they were immature 20 something guys, Lennon and McCartney. So they had George Martin <laughs> tell George Harrison that he needed to come up with something else. Um, he's been very agreeable, but again, he's now getting to the point where he, simply does not want to be so anymore. And he's going to be honest with them. Um, And of course, that leads to an argument with John Lennon on January 10th, 1969, which sends George packing uh, and leaving the band, uh, at least for a while. Um, And and he was also understandably, I think, neurotic about his place in the group. Um, And it was an issue that would be long, long standing. And George Martin would admit to having a role in this. You know, he went with the hot hand and the hot hand was more often than not Lennon and McCartney and would bypass George Harrison or give him less time to develop his ideas in the studio. And he would give these 
very, this very wide berth to Lennon and McCartney when it came to their work. Um, well, as producer, that's probably his job, right, at a certain level. Um, and of course, even as late as 1966, George Martin is trying to make sure that they're maintaining their dominion. You know, they're not a settled case in 1966. They could still be a flash in the pan as far as the Beatles were concerned. We know differently, but, you know, go back to 1966 and be in those shoes. But I think all of this left uh, George Harrison and intentionally on the part of Lennon McCartney and Martin as a kind of second, even third class at times member of the group, like a a member of the junior varsity, (laughs) you know, to borrow from sports. And he resented it and didn't quite know what to do with it. And there are those interesting moments in January 1969 where he's clearly coming up with some great new stuff like All Things Must Pass. What a song, right? Um, and he's not getting anything out of them. He's not getting a response. He's not getting a response uh, when he keeps bringing up the song Something, which is clearly a major piece of work. And yet, yes. <laughs> and yet uh, they just can't, uh, they can't quite listen to him. So if he had a complex, it was understandable. Uh, George Martin and George Harrison were talking about it as late as 1993 when they were doing a tour to promote the Red and Blue album's 20th anniversary. And uh, it was then that they worked out a couple of issues around that. And George Martin apologized to George Harrison for his role in that. Yeah, well, I, to me, you know, just like it was really poignant, uh, the scene where John's crying in the movie theater watching the movie, you know, let it be uh, from and Paul in turn for feeling useless up in Scotland. Uh, there's a comment of George in your book where he says he felt really tiny in the Beatles and like he was in a bag. And that, that really struck me a lot. One thing I thought was interesting in the book, cause I I've always bought into this, but I, I have a slightly different view now that I've uh, done some extensive reading of the expressions of the four Beatles, what I call facial coding for my, my book, uh, famous faces decoded. Uh, in other words, I've always gone along with this notion of, of uh, George as the quiet Beatle and probably, you know, and a very agreeable Beatle in terms of assuming his ego, given the band setting. And I can go a long ways with that. But the thing that struck me when I really analyzed the Beatles closely was actually how much anger there also was in George. And I know at one point I came across maybe in a different book, I believe, where Ringo said, I was never quite certain, you know, in the studio whether I was going to get the pretty affable George or I could get the George who, you know, was prepared, you know, at least verbally to hit out and I had to uh, guard myself a bit. Um, you know, when I facially coded the Beatles, I actually looked at different stages of their career. And if you tar- take early childhood up through probably even the, uh, you know, start of the Beatles, let me do and all that. Paul and George were, I think Paul in part because of his mom's death, although of course John lost his mom early too, but uh, they were the, the least uh, upbeat of the Beatles in the photographs that I studied. Uh, And then they all progressed into a pretty happy state. But at the end, it's Paul that's the happiest. He's running the Beatles in lots of ways. And George so distinctly falls off. I mean, your book mentions the uh, taking the photographs uh, for, you know, the, uh, you know, uh, don't let me down and all those kinds of songs that were held back. But that photo session that I guess it was, John's house, George's mansion, one or the other, you know, where George really looked pretty desultory is just so true of that time period for him. 
I think I would agree with that. Um, you know, when you go back to their childhoods, there is something that really connects George and Paul, and that is they easily had the happiest households of of the of the of the group of the bandmates, particularly Harrison. I mean, the, the Harrison's house was uh, a, a generally happy place to be. It's where everybody wanted to go, all the kids in the neighborhood. Um, and Paul, you know, you mentioned the loss of their mother, which is uh, a tragedy for Paul and his brother, Mike, and his dad, Jim Mack. But they were still very happy. I was talking to Mike McCartney recently about this and just uh, the fun that they would have doing crossword puzzles, the three of them sitting around the piano in their front parlor. So I wonder if Paul and George were just okay being themselves in this very various kinds of emotions because they came from an accepting home. Whereas, you know, uh, John's was certainly very complicated and, and would change a lot depending on the time period. Uh, and then you had Ringo, who was sickly for most of his youth. Um, and of course, uh, there were challenges in terms of his family as well. So um, that's an interesting point. I do think Harrison is, uh, you know, frankly, pissed off <laughs> in, uh, in 1969. Um, and he always likes to point out how he'd been spending time with Bob Dylan and the band. And here were these guys who just... Um, accepted him as a major talent. And then he comes back to his home band and, you know, suddenly he's, you know, he's back in fifth grade. Uh, sure. <laughs> I love well, when, when that I, great I, line when, about being tiny kind of says it all, right? It does say, it does say an awful lot. I, I guess, you know, when I looked back at the, you know, through the perspective of anger, then I started thinking about song titles of Harrison's, you know, tax man, don't bother me. Think for yourself, you know, until he had the great flowering and, and went to India and all that, you know, I, I would argue in a lot of ways, he certainly did not exhibit openness as a conscientious or as a, you know, as a person and actually conscientiousness in some ways, on the other hand, because he worked so painstakingly to get better as a guitarist over the years. Before we leave yeah. George, it's important to note too, that um, you mentioned the tape that they made in September, 1969 on that tape. Uh, Harrison talks about while my guitar gently weeps, which is a major league song. Uh, yep. And he kind of, not kind of, he chides John Lennon for not noticing. Yeah, well, strangely, yeah, we all embody our own contradictions. I mean, John is, in some senses, incredibly open. And in other ways, maybe so open that he's oblivious or was oblivious at times. What What about Ringo? We don't want to leave, leave out the drummer. Um, what stands out to you about, you know, Ringo and the role of EQ and personality traits, wherever you might want to take the question in terms of Ringo. You know, he was remarkably, um, he knew his place in the band, but uh, he had his own uh, problems and challenges with being agreeable. Uh, he was the perfect drummer for them in the sense that, and, and you could probably trace this psychologically to childhood and the traumas he experienced with his illnesses, going to a succession of hospitals, broken home, et cetera. But, uh, uh, you know, ultimately he was highly agreeable and, and the perfect drummer for them because he wouldn't model up uh, a recording with Phil's. Um, and by the same token, uh, he would be willing to sit there for literally hours while they worked out an idea. Um, and they would go at it and take it from different angles. And he was, uh, you know, to borrow the phrasing directly from you in that that schema, he was agreeable. 
you look for the moment of trauma, and it's in the summer of 1968 uh, or later, perhaps, when he quits the band uh, briefly uh, because he keeps coming in and he's ready to go and ready to work, and they kind of take him for granted. Uh, and that's the thing that sets him off uh, in terms of his psychology and that group being taken for granted, feeling like I show up every day and you don't even bother to tell me when you don't need, uh, you know, when you don't have a place for drums that day. Uh, and it's, it's interesting how that becomes his flashpoint uh, when he tries to fulfill his role um, that he's been thrust into. And it's, it's slightly different than Harrison, of course, because Harrison has also been thrust into a role, but he's been fighting back at it uh, much longer uh, than Ringo. In fact, Ringo arguably doesn't fight back other than his walkout in 1968. Yeah. The, I guess for me, the poignant moment, I, I did note that very much that they just kind of forgot that he wasn't needed that day. But I was struck by him saying that the end of the band was in some ways relief because I always had the impression of Ringo just kind of rolling with it. But then he tied it in professionally and said that he felt like the band, probably because of these chemistry issues in part, heroin's, heroin usage by Lennon, et cetera, that the band was just um, you know starting to lose a beat. It wasn't uh, as strong, as cohesive a band as it was, and, and maybe it really was time for it to be done. I, I tend to agree with him. Um, I'm not sure that I, I think they were that good that should, should, had they continued, we would have some wonderful music. Um, but having said that, they really needed to break up. I know it's blasphemous to say that. And when I do, I, I often get, you know, eye rolls and those sorts of things. But, uh, you know, it was a relationship that was not going, it's so hardwired by this point, it wasn't necessarily going to get better in any of the ways that they needed it to, to move forward. And of course, in hindsight, one of the greatest uh, aspects of their legacy is that they do break up and they create this incredible mystique. They walk out of the chocolate factory, you know, to borrow from Willy Wonka and they disappear <laughs> uh, and it creates an aura around it. Um, they still exist, of course. They're making solo records and um, they're, they're still in the news, just not quite as much so because the lens uh, was always bigger when it focused on the Beatles. So um, I, I, it, it's such an interesting contradictory moment. I do think they needed to break up. And of course, as I said, in hindsight, it's the best move they ever made. Well, there is, of course, the moment where George Martin says to uh, other people back in the production booth watching the Beatles to a surprisingly strong degree, uh, managed to forge ahead and be amiable despite the ups and downs. But he says to somebody, you'd never guess that the four of them actually can't stand each other. <laughs> and when you're to that point, it's going to be rather difficult. So let's let's move the equation here over to uh, people's lives, because unfortunately, we all can find ourselves uh, in, in uh, relationships, whether personal or professional, where we have regrettably come to the point where we can't really seem to stand each other. I, I suppose that means you simply dissolve the, the marriage or the business arrangement. But are there... You know, you know the Beatles so intimately. Are there lessons for all of us in terms of our own lives and applying emotional intelligence, things that the, any one of the Beatles or collectively did well together, even at this late stage, and you know, the kinds of missed opportunities that we all could learn from just to live our lives better? Absolutely. And one of the key ones 
for me is what made them great and and really what makes any great artistic fusion flower in extraordinary ways. And that is a kind of recognition. I, I've likened them during our conversation just now to modern modernists. And I think they have so much to do and so much in common with the great British modernists of their age, um, some of whom were still living when the Beatles were working at this time. And one of the great characteristics of the modernists was this um, self-consciousness about their about the fact that they're doing something important. And I think the Beatles came to realize that we forced them. Uh, when you go back to 1960s media, particularly the critical media, we forced them to realize that they were doing something really important. And that probably eked out more time with them uh, and more time for them to, to continue making great art, that kind of self-consciousness. And, and George Harrison was wonderful in, uh, uh, when he comes back to the band during the get back sessions in January, 1969. And uh, there's that great moment when he sort of bounces his chest with his fist, touching his heart. And he says, heart of hearts, I should be here with you. Uh, and I yeah. love t- sharing that with students when I teach the Beatles, because it reminds us that they knew full well that they were doing something really important. And they were, you know, they knew music so intimately from many years of studying it. They had, they knew at, at a certain level that they were doing something truly extraordinary and they were able to stay in it because it was bigger than themselves. They were in a larger mission. Maybe it's history, legacy, um, just doing something uh, really, really well that kept them in it. And I think that's an important uh, lesson we can learn about emotional intelligence, being able to put ourselves a, to the side. Um, I don't quite agree with uh, George Martin, but of course he saw them in a certain lens about them not being able to stand themselves. Of course, he was saying that somewhat ironically, uh, not being able to stand each other. Um, But in terms of creative differences, they were very good and stayed in it longer uh, than most at putting those to the side and doing something great. You know, John Lennon hated the song Honey Pie, but go back, and listen to it and listen to the guitar solo he fashions on his Epiphone Casino. And you realize how committed he could be at times to that band. It's a work of uh, wonderment. He makes the guitar sound like a clarinet. It's incredible. Uh, and he falls right into that kind of uh, that old sounding 30-ish mode with ease. So to me, it's the emotional ability when we're able to see that we're involved in something that's larger than ourselves and we contribute to it in a kind of uh, generous uh, and wholehearted and honest way. When we can't do that anymore, though, it's time to move on. Yeah, no, to me, the the tragedy is, I mean, George had so obviously become a, you know, a pretty major talent at that point. I mean, it's hard to say as major as Lennon and McCartney, given their legacy, but a major talent and the inability just to recognize that the landscape had changed and uh, give him his four songs per album and, and, and move on. Maybe would have saved the Beatles. Maybe wouldn't have, who knows? Well, well look, anyway, at, uh, uh, when you look I, at the day yeah. that George died uh, and Paul came out, he wanted to get it right because of course his comments after John died were taken so badly. Uh, he came out of his estate. He parked, he went right up to the, uh, the media that had gathered there. And he said, I've lost my little brother. And that tells you everything you need to know about that relationship. 
It's a very loving True. thing. But in Paul's mind, he's still the guy he met on the bus, you know, going to school in 1956 or whenever. Yeah. And forever one year younger. Yes. That's right. Yeah. So our, our time's about up. It's been a delight, Kenneth. Uh, I want to thank you again for being my guest on Dan Hill's EQ Spotlight. Uh, this has been episode number three, Finding EQ with a little help from the Beatles. Uh, to check out other episodes or my books, uh, lectures, or other activities, uh, I do have uh, a website. It's the obligatory three W's and then sensorylogic.com, as in your five senses. If you've got any follow-up for my guests today, uh, you can feel free to email me at dhill at sensorylogic.com. Uh, if you've enjoyed the show, please, by all means, give it a five-star rating or a view online uh, and follow up on future podcasts. Finally, I'd like to conclude every episode with an appropriate epigram, uh, fishing around for one today about emotions and music. I chose one from uh, fellow rocker and occasional Paul McCartney collaborator, Elvis Costello, who said, can a mere song change a people's minds? I doubt it is so, but a song can infiltrate your heart and the heart may change your mind. Until next time, be kind and stay safe, and the life you save may be your own. Goodbye.